Okay, well, let's kick it off. So, Joseph, uh, this room today, and and for everyone joining, we're going to get started. This room today is called Bhakti Yoga, Yoga of Devotion, and we're going to be talking about just that, devotion, and, and a little bit on the phrase yoga of devotion, union um, through devotion. So to kick it off, Joseph, do you mind starting with what is devotion and where does it sit on the spiritual path? Sure. Thanks, James. Uh, so devotion is is an emotion. It is uh, emotion, the same thing that we call love for the uh, things at our level or lower in life. When we turn that emotion towards the higher, the highest, the truth, even not the highest, even something just above us, then it's devotion. So I should back up, actually. Every human being, as we've said here many times, is composed of a body, a mind, and an intellect. So the body is a vehicle for the inner personality of the mind and intellect to move about in the world. So the body is perceptions and actions. The mind is emotion, all the flowy stuff. It is irrational, not in a judgmental way. It's just factually irrational, unlike the third equipment, the intellect, which is highly rational, logic-driven, based on judgment and reason, etc. So, this whole discussion today is at the level of the mind. Mind is where the emotions, is the seat of our emotions, is the home of our emotions. That's the mind, or manas in Sanskrit. So those feelings in us that, we're, that are uh, lower, as it were, in the sense like, okay, I love my surfboard. I love pancakes, whatever it is, mundane things. This is, we use the word love for that type of identification affection for, etc., for lower objects and beings, or those at our level. My friends, my colleagues, whatever. I love him, I love her. But when that emotion is directed towards the higher, that emotion that is in the mind, it's in the manas. When it's directed towards the higher, that's called devotion. When we have a upward identification, an upward feeling for something higher than us. It could be that we're devoted to our parents. It could be that we're devoted to the country. Higher in the sense that it's bigger than just uh, me and mine. And the highest devotion is for God, truth, reality. So there's a lot more to say, obviously, but just generally speaking, James, it is an emotion. So, in the spiritual path, the whole effort is to attain yoga, attain union with the reality, with truth, with our real self, to become self-realized. 
So we have to utilize all of the equipments that we have to do that. So traditionally speaking, when the body is engaged to uh, in yoga, when the body is engaged in activities that move us towards the reality, that move us into transcendence of our ego, that move us towards that highest state of being, that's called karma yoga. Karma yoga is for the body. <clears throat> when we utilize our mind, our feelings, our emotions that we've been talking about for the sake of purifying our personality, detaching our personality, liberating ourselves from our ego, at the emotional level, when we do that, it's called bhakti yoga. A person who does bhakti yoga is a bhakta. So just good to get some terms in place for the sake of the discussion. No, I think this is actually really helpful to have an orientation. It's almost like if we're going to dive into Oklahoma, it's great to know the general geography around it. And so you, you said karma for the body or yoga for the body is karma. And bhakti, a bhakta, practices yoga for the mind. Yeah, right. So karma yoga for the body, bhakti yoga for the mind, and jnana yoga for the intellect, which is where we get our clubhouse name, yoga for your intellect. So all human beings have a body, have a mind, have an intellect. Therefore, all human beings have to do, if they're interested in union, if they're interested in true yoga with the reality, all human beings have to do karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and jnana yoga. And they have to do it proportional to their own nature. So by and large, for people who are here, if you come repeatedly to this clubhouse or if you attend our watch our podcasts or if you attend my Zoom classes or whatever it is, if you repeatedly come, it's probably because you have an intellectual bent. Otherwise, a person may say, hey, you should listen to that clubhouse thing and you it won't uh, do anything for you if that person is not of the intellectual bent, if they're not a thinking, reasoning, judging type of person. This won't appeal to them. Right? So our, our approach here for sure, is much more about the knowledge-based uh, approach to the truth using study, study, reflection, contemplation, ultimately meditation, and all of that. But it doesn't mean that uh, people here don't have emotions. It doesn't mean that people here don't have hearts, feelings, love, all of that. Of course we do. So... To the extent that we are an emotional person, to the extent that we have feelings that need to be placed somewhere, to that extent, we have got to make sure we include bhakti yoga in our path. Same, same thing is true with karma yoga. You're going to be doing actions. I'm going to be doing actions. We're all going to be doing actions. So... How can we do actions in a way that are yoga? 
that help us to transcend our ego, help us to transcend our desires and all of that. That's karma yoga. So each one is a different percentage, a different combination of uh, attention on their body, mind, and intellect. Some people are much more active, so they need to really pay attention to more about what actions they're doing, what their karma yoga is. Some people are really emotional, lots all the time living at the level of their feelings. Such a person needs to really... Uh, pay attention to what their bhakti yoga practice is. And other people are much more intellectual, can talk philosophy all day, really fixated on uh, collecting more media, uh, more philosophy material. And that person uh, would therefore be more comfortable in a more uh, yoga for your intellect type of path, a more jnana yoga path. All of these yogas, Karma yoga for the body, bhakti yoga for the mind and heart, jnana yoga for the intellect. They all send the male to the same place, which is essentially dissolution of the ego, reduction of the bulk of our desires. That's what karma yoga does. As you act for higher causes, for higher purposes, for a higher ideal, your own selfish, personal sensual, pleasure-driven desires fade away. So the bulk of your desires fall off of you, which helps to break that wall of ego, ultimately. The bhakti yoga path purifies the personality so that there is less ego-based emotion. It, your emotion becomes more universal, less preferential. This is the effect of turning our hearts towards something broader, more universal than just our attachments. And the jnana yoga fixates the personality in a different direction on the transcendental, on the truth, on the absolute reality, which ultimately cuts the ego down completely. It severs the ego from its uh, erstwhile identification with the personality, which only knowledge can do. So anyway, this is just still background. And <laughs> we're just... No, this is... Yeah. I think this is yeah. super important orientation yeah. worth, you know, seven, eight minutes for sure. And and it, it further orientation on, on yoga of devotion before we dive into... Bhakti Yoga. So you have, and for those that are joining the room that that may only know the the yoga of downward dog, and that's Hatha Yoga, and that's more of a exercise uh, strengthening regimen, which is profoundly useful. But we're talking about the spiritual paths of. Uh, there's three primary yogas, correct? Of Karma, Bhakti and jnana and karma for action bhakti devotion the, the mind emotion and jnana intellect the uh, that in inward guru that uh, that helps us attach to higher ideals most of our conversations are around yoga for the intellect 
hence the name of the club, as he noted. But I love that you wanted to dive into bhakti yoga for today's conversation because it's we all should embody all three, correct? That it, it is not like, oh, this is how I'm wired. Let me lose the other two. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just that we all have a body that perceives and acts. We all have a heart that feels and we all have an intellect that thinks. So um, if one part of the system is not interested in yoga, not directed to yoga, it will hold everything else back. Mm. Right. So it's just uh, it's a matter of streamlining the entire personality to where you get into whole body worship or as it were, that's not even the right way to put it, whole personality worship. You should feel what you think, and you should understand what you feel. And your actions, if you truly understand and truly feel, will follow accordingly. If your actions are completely opposite of what knowledge we're talking about or even lecturing about to other people or whatever, then it shows that there's no real understanding. It's surface. You, you may understand it. You can pass a test write a paper on it and whatever, but it, it's uh, the rubber meets the road in action. Have you, so have you seen yeah. in 25 years of dedication to Vedanta, have you seen people that are, that are over applying Jnana yoga, um, yoga for their intellect and, and little to no devotion, or does it kind of build up like a pyramid that you really only get to the yoga of your intellect through an understanding of first uh, karma, the yoga uh, body, yoga for your mind? No, if there's understanding, if there's true understanding and reflection, if there's truly uh, maturity in that way, then devotion follows. So the intellect is like the conquering army and the, the, the mind and its feelings and emotions are like mm -hmm. all of the, the civilization that follows a, an army into a conquered land, as it were. So the, the spearhead, no doubt, is knowledge. The spearhead of, that penetrates the unknown, that penetrates the broader uh, perception, the penetrates all of that. That's the intellect. When the intellect is truly established in it, the mind will follow in that direction. The mind will not follow if the intellect is not truly established. So there won't be that, that devotion. There will just be philosophy. So, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think we're, we may even be a couple steps ahead already. I'll, I'll just for the yeah, sake please, of please laying it down. So, yeah, so bringing it back to uh, the introduction, there's karma yoga for the body, bhakti yoga for the heart, for the mind, jnana yoga for the intellect. All of these have the effect of reducing our ego with creating a sense of elbow room between us and the world, between us and our personalized preferences, between us and our, our egoistic drives the three yogas do this 
not immediately, but quite soon, if, to the extent that you understand and to the extent that we cultivate a bit of devotion, to the extent that we're doing a little bit of service. To that extent, we, to that extent, we experience a little bit of mental withdrawal from the world. It sounds bad, but it's not bad. What it means is we have, we create a thought space. We create, uh, as Maya Angelou says, place to space to place new steps of change. It's a beautiful idea. There, you need space to place new steps of change. And this space from our own desires, from our own preoccupation with our ego, that's what happens with these three yogas. And then if we continue to, to do the three yogas, that space gets even broader. We find ourselves with more composure, more space, less reactivity less preferential nature. We become less specific about our demands for the world. We become more interested in service and sacrifice. And this keeps going. It's an upward cleaning thing, right? So as we continue to put effort in this, this inner space opens up, becomes more and more broad, for which we can then get into the deeper practices of profound reflection, profound contemplation, holding our attention on the conscious principle that we are, and ultimately getting into meditation and self-realization. So that last 30 seconds is, is a lifetime of effort, if not many lifetimes. So I don't mean to make it sound short, but it, it just to put these yogas in, the, in their proper place in terms of the entire spiritual sadhana, Sadhana means spiritual effort. So in the spiritual sadhana, karma, bhakti, jnana are there from the beginning, and they go all the way through these stages of withdrawal uh, called uparati and dharana, which is ability to concentrate more deeply, and then ultimately dhyana, which is meditation. And all of them are these three yogas, karma, bhakti, jnana, yoga. They go throughout the path, eliminating desires and the desires are the building blocks of the ego so the ego slowly comes apart until you get to the end which is the dissolution which is the river meeting the ocean where you lose your individuality but you gain the totality so this is the broader look at the the spiritual path that it seems important to talk about at the beginning so then the question is, okay, bhakti yoga, what is it? That's where we are. Uh, so you good with that, James? That's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> okay. Imagine that. All right. Uh, cool. So <laughs> no, I think so, it's a great yeah. it's a great setup, uh, and yeah. and I think maybe one last orienting setup mm -hmm. would be. I remember you telling me within uh, within karma, bhakti, and jnana yoga, three yogas that karma action is is great to undertake because it it shows you where there is work left to be done you get agitated uh in action like we all do and and it just brings to the surface oh this is where there's work left to be done within does bhakti have the same quality of you might think it's it's great to just sit quietly contemplate reflect digest more knowledge but does bhakti also have a 
just another layer of being able to show you where there's work left to be done? Uh, well, I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean, but um, certainly if you see bhakti, as I was saying, is is in many ways an effect. It's it's a bowing, you know, it's a humility, it's a surrender. And we haven't even gotten into the real definitions of what it is or, or you know, not that we can actually totally define it, but. It, it is more of a surrender. It is it is more of a uh, flow of emotions towards the higher, right? So um, you'll see through as we talk that it's difficult to, to say what is the practice of bhakti. Bhakti is much more of a state, is much mm. more, it's a condition of the mind that comes up. Oh, that being said, that being said, there are certain things that could broadly be considered bhakti, where you might feel a, a resistance to doing that thing, and that would probably yes, that would be useful to show to show us uh, uh, where we still have work, our inability to surrender to the higher. If we are alert intellectually, we can see that in ourselves. Or even inability to surrender to elders, inability to surrender to a guru, inability to surrender to whatever it is that we are devoted to. That will show us that, wow, okay, I've still got quite a fair amount of ego here in that way. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And so now let's jump into what is, if we can attempt, if you can attempt to define bhakti and, and devotion as best we can. Sure. So um, it's always good to go to the source or one of the main sources, which is the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is called, thankfully, Bhakti Yoga. So the whole chapter is about the path of devotion. And at this point, I think it's interesting um, for people to understand, you know, or to think about when, when we say devotion, he's a devotional, that person is a, a devout Catholic, or that person is a devout Hindu, or that person is a devoted Muslim, or whatever it is. Uh, that comes with all kinds of conceptions and misconceptions. That, so we think, oh, what, what is it that makes a person a great devotee of any religion or any god or any practice is, oh, he dresses that way, a certain way, or he or she doesn't eat something on certain days, or he and she visit, he or she visits places, certain places of pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that we, that, that we ascribe to devotion that actually have nothing to do with it, per se. They may support devotion. And and in fact, you know, even if, you, James, you were in the ashram, uh, you saw we have certain uniforms that we wear. There, there are certain um, types of chants that are done at multiple times a day. Um, there's clearly devotion to our guru, Swamiji, there. Um, that all is visible, but the actions that we associate with devotion are per se, we can't call it that we can't say just because a person is doing a particular action 
just because a person is dressing a particular way or doing it or going to mass every day or, or having Seder dinner every Friday or, or, or doing namaz five times a day, whatever it is, just because a person is executing a particular action or presenting themselves in a particular way, none of that has anything to do with whether or not they are a bhakta. These things mm -hmm. may be conducive, but they do not have anything to do with what is a, who is a bhakta, who is a, a person practicing bhakti yoga in the real sense. Mm -hmm. So that's just as kind of a uh, background also. So the, the first part of the, the 12th chapter of the Gita is really interesting also. Another thing to point out, which is that Arjuna, the, the character in the Gita, asks Krishna, he says, is it better to worship with a form or worship a formless truth? And Krishna answers to Arjuna that it's better with the form. But then he goes on to say, but also, if you worship formless, if you worship a formless truth, a formless reality, in other words, if you worship a concept, basically, he says that also will take you there, to the highest, to true yoga. But it's much more difficult. So when we're talking about devotion, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a finer point, but it's good to, to say that when it comes to devotion, it, it could be to a physical thing, it could be to a form, but it could also be to a higher ideal, to a concept. There are people that worship actual stones, actual hillsides, actual, you know, whatever, physical things. That's form worship. It's called saguna upasana. But there's also nirguna upasana, worship of something that is formless, which is no doubt uh, more difficult because it's subtler, because it requires uh, a more intellectual uh, I don't know, a more intellectual constitution in the personality. What would be an example of worshipping of a concept? Oh, like you were saying at the beginning, uh, the ear of the ear, the mind of the mind. As a concept, you can't directly worship the ear of the ear. This is from Kano Upanishad for those who weren't there at the beginning. James was reading Kano Upanishad or hearing about it today, in which he describes God as the ear of the ear, the innermost ear, the fundamental consciousness underlying all hearing, all seeing, all smelling, all tasting, all touching. Even neuroscientists. Uh, I, I went to a talk one time by this guy, David Eagleman. He's a quite brilliant neuroscientist guy. He was doing the, round on, the rounds on TED Talks and stuff for a while. Halfway through, he said, we have no, the, the elephant in the room of neuroscience is consciousness itself. We have no idea where it is, how it comes, where it comes from. And this is like one of the leading guys uh, in, the, in the field. He says, this, this will never be, probably never be understood by neuroscience, because it's it's fundamental. It seems to be beyond cause and effect. It was pure philosophy, James. The talk was amazing. It was amazing. He was he was he was right there. And it's funny his that that neuroscience ends where Vedanta begins. Mm. So our assumption is 
consciousness is the is the one self-evident thing. All the rest is questionable. They say all the other things are self-evident, but consciousness is questionable. It's ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so what is that consciousness, that ear of the ear, the eye of the eye? That's what you were studying today. That's right. That's an example of something, a concept for which you can have devotion, for which your mind can surrender to and direct very chaste feelings towards. Worship, a concept, nirguna upasana, formless worship. But you have to be, you know, of that constitution, of a a more intellectual type. Hmm. For a more emotional, yeah, go ahead. go, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, for, for a more emotional uh, person who's not so clear in their thinking in that way, not interested in thinking in that way, whatever, it may help them to have an idol, to have an actual place in the world that they associate with God, with the truth, with reality. It may help them to have certain physical practices. And I don't mean them. I mean all of us. I mean, I, I, I should say, I'm not... Uh, as we said at the beginning, everybody has all of them, right? So uh, there are certain places that, for me, are are create that feeling for the higher. Um, clearly, being in the presence of Swami Swamiji, our Guru Swami Parthasarthi, clearly creates that feeling for the higher. Uh, wearing certain clothes. I'm just saying, I, so I don't want to make it sound like, hey, we're a bunch of intellectuals and we're not interested in devotion. No, 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 that's not it. It's just a question of proportion, right? There are certain hills in India, certain temples in Bombay that I showed you. We went together. Those those places, um, they do something in at my level of feelings. For me, I'm just uh, talking for myself. Uh, to say that we, we shouldn't come across as you know anti-devotional practices we all need them to but it's a question of how much so if i if i'm only doing devotional practices as an intellectual i would be very frustrated because i'd be like come on i want to talk philosophy i want to use my intellect i want to penetrate the unknown with my thoughts if we're only doing rituals all day i wouldn't be satisfied likewise if you're only doing philosophical things all day and contemplating, but your your emotional uh, side of it is completely stunted. You won't grow, and you'll be equally frustrated. So everybody's got to, first of all, understand the three yogas, and then create a sadhana basically for yourself, but of course, with the help of people you trust, if you have any spiritual advisor to help you to figure out how much of my effort should be at the body level, how much at the heart level, how much at the intellectual level. And if we get it right for our particular personality, we will go places, spiritually speaking. You mentioned, you mentioned the words worship and surrender. Are those synonyms with bhakti? Yeah, so this is good. So we're coming more now towards, uh, towards bhakti. Um, yes, so worship is is a much more of a uh, an emotional devotional type of word when you worship something you praise it you you send your love in that direction that's that's one aspect of bhakti so yeah like you said at the beginning uh, 
I don't think we can hope to define bhakti here. We can just explore it and leave people to their own exploration. That would be a good result of this effort. Um, but yes, so uh, worship is definitely an aspect of, of bhakti. And so is surrender. So surrender is, is to something unknown, to something greater than us, to something beyond our, our capacity to understand. We surrender. We say, I don't know how this all functions. To that, I bow. Um, you could even say that uh, with re regard to our own action, you know, we're so sure that we're that we're doing the right thing. We're so sure that we're going to make a big difference in the world. A, a devotional approach would be to say, I recognize in the grand scheme of things the futility of my own karma. This is one of the great definitions I've ever heard uh, Swamiji say about what is bhakti yoga. <laughs> he defined it uh, as... Not too long ago, a few years ago, in a group discussion at the ashram, he defined bhakti yoga as recognition of the futility of your own karma. You surrender to this uh, idea, to this, to this larger totality that's functioning and recognize that one person doesn't have very much influence. This is a, a bhakti approach to our action, for example. It's surrender to your own, own the, your futility of your own karma or surrender to karma yoga? No, no. Recognizing the futility of your own action. Mm. Recognizing the futility of your own karma. Your own Karma just means action. People have different ideas about karma. I should have defined that. Karma literally in Sanskrit means action. So when it says karma yoga, it means yoga of action. So recognizing that we are all part of something inconceivably beyond any one of us and inconceivably beyond all of us, actually. Even this, the entire created universe is a bubble in the ocean of existence. Imagine the ocean and there's one bubble that a fish uh, let out somewhere deep in the ocean. That's the whole created universe. And the ocean is reality. So recognizing the ocean for what it is, a person will bow and say, what is my tiny little bit of action have anything to do with anything? It's nothing. Recognizing the futility of our own actions, of our own place in this thing. That it's absolutely infinite. And by the way, the ocean's infinite just to make it worse, as it were. You understand? Mm -hmm. So in an infinite ocean, a one fish lets up a little bubble, and it's floating up to the surface. As it floats, it has some solidity as a bubble, and that's the entire created universe. And eventually it goes, plop, at the top. What is, mm -hmm. the, what is the meaning of that bubble out in the middle of the Pacific, halfway to Japan from here in California? You know? Mm -hmm. Nothing. So recognizing, then within the bubble, what is our action? This is devotion also. This surrender. It's, this. And that's, um, I guess it's, it's contrary to how you would conventionally think about 
devotion as being something that you, a genuflection of it. It's a moving towards something. It's, it is a striving of sorts in the conventional definitions. But mm. surrender, or to the definition you just gave, futility of one's own actions, it's not a striving. It is a, that is a helpful articulation of surrender, of just a letting go, a, re- a recognition. It's a recognition, not, a, not just a striving. Or maybe what you're saying is it's even better for it to be a recognition than to be a striving. Is that, is that directionally correct? Yeah, it's a good point, which I hadn't thought of before in that, that way. Um, I never really thought of that difference, but you're right, it is. It's it's more of a releasing. It's a, yes, a letting go, a surrender. That's one piece of it. We're not defining bhakti yoga that way. Bhakti yoga is mm-hmm. beyond is bigger than that. Only that, but there's definitely that element of surrender. Yeah, but even to make it more practical, like okay, you surrender to your doctor, right? You go to the doctor. Eventually, you surrender to them. You say that guy went to med school. He's got this degree. He's got this recommendation. These people told me he's great. I surrender. We give him the money and we take the treatment. You know, at some point, what is that? You put your own ego aside, right? Unless you don't surrender, unless you go to the hospital and tell him that you did your Google research and this is the pills you want and this is the procedure you want. And people do that, right? That's not that's not a surrender. Then it's like, yeah, it's different. But uh, we, we surrender all the time. We're constantly, we surrender to the engineers that built the houses or the rooms we're sitting in or the office building, depending where people are. Who knows? Probably everyone's yeah, home every, these days. Every meal you order at a restaurant. Yeah, ordering at a restaurant. These are the examples. So you don't know what's that food is coming from or what's been done to it or we don't know. So there's a there's a release into that. Mm-hmm. Allowing that to be what it is. So the same thing when it comes to the highest, to the truth. We penetrate with our intellect, we go as far as we can, but we also have to surrender at some point. We have to simply bow. And put aside our uh, our tainting of it with our ego and its desires and demands and, and expectations and all of that. Okay, great. So this is uh, a great primer. Um, keep going. Yeah, so I think, uh, it, you know, <laughs> uh, it's always good to leave questions in, in people's minds. I think it's better sometimes than answers. So... Uh, if we're leaving a bunch of questions in your mind, good. We're glad. Uh, recommend Chapter 12 of the Bhagavad Gita. And um, and, and we're about to yeah. open it up for Q&A in, in yeah. five minutes or so, ten minutes. So, yeah, feel free to jot the questions down. This and is I, such I should, a different – Yeah, go ahead. It's just a different perspective on – we hear – like I, you see the word devotion and you feel like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. And and you've heard it, or you grew up in a a re- religious household that, mm-hmm. like you said, uses the words like devout Catholic, and and so we think we know what it is, uh, but you've already just blown my mind of of the definition that Swamiji gave of 
of it's more of a recognition and a recognition of futility of your own actions um, more yeah. so than like just give up everything and follow a path or you know don the cloak uh, and become a devout follower it is yeah so this is great okay keep going yeah, so, uh, you know, bhakti also is at the level of emotion, so it's not as easily to pin, easy to pin down rationally, right? So it's like, uh, in that way, ideas are easier to talk about to some extent. So just as like a background kind of disclaimer, it's, it's not that we're, anyone's like holding back, it's just that we are talking about the heart, and the heart is, does not really necessarily speak the language of logic. So anyway, hopefully these things all sort of point in the direction of what bhakti is. But one other thing I think is useful before questions is just to, the way that Krishna describes bhakti yoga in the Gita is with 35 qualities of a bhakta. And we won't go through all of them, but just to give a sample. So you have to understand, you have, you have Arjuna, who's his student, and Krishna is trying to teach Arjuna what bhakti is. What is bhakti yoga? And what is its place in the path? And he chooses to do it by giving 35 qualities of a bhakta. So these 35 qualities equal bhakti yoga. Um, and they're not probably exhaustive, but it's really interesting. So I'll just give a few. The first one, the famous one is, they're all famous, but the first one is really so. Advaita sarva bhutana which literally means no otherness with any being. No hatred of any being, but no otherness. A-dveshta. Sarva-bhutanam. All beings. No otherness with any being. Wow. And so if you work it out, it's like, okay, what does that have to do with bhakti? So bhakti yoga is identification with the reality, identification with the consciousness, identification with the Godhead, love of it, identification with it, identification and love are using the same way. It's, it's emotion. It's a feeling of identification with the consciousness that is in everything and everyone, therefore, we are a bhakta to the extent that we identify with everyone. If we have otherness from anyone, then our surrender is not complete. We don't fully identify with the consciousness because, okay, I love God, but not in that person. I love God, but not in that animal. I love God, but not in that planet or whatever mm -hmm. it is then that is the limit of our devotion. That a, a bhakta, a perfect bhakta, he says, has no hatred for any being of any kind. There's no otherness. This is the first one. He goes mm -hmm. on, he says, friendly and compassionate. These are all related. Free from attachment and egoism. Balanced in pleasure and pain. So if we're if we're really happy and and uh, stable when everything's nice and pleasurable, but we're really agitated and disturbed when we are experiencing some pain, 
This is a lack of surrender. This is a lack of trust in the the great greatest picture we can imagine in the in the reality itself. So we're not we don't have objectivity. We don't have that highest vision. There's no bhakti there. A bhakta is one who surrenders. A bhakta is one who says, "Thy will shall be done." You know, but if we pollute it with our preferences, I, but it should be done my way, this way or that way, and we're not bhaktas, and nobody's a perfect bhakta here. That's for sure. So we all have our limits. But he goes on. So many of these these qualities, forgiving, ever content, self-controlled. I'm just flipping through some of them. Pure, unconcerned, untroubled, dexterous. Dexterous it means very smart and skillful in what they do is a bhakta. So, how what's so? Interesting, yeah, how would you explain that one? Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying how how so so being great at what you do, mastering a craft or being a great marketing director at company X. How is that? Uh, do you mind illuminating that further on why that is bhakta or bhakti? Well, I think it's also uh, interesting as a contrast to the sort of preconceived idea that a devotee or a devoted, a devotional person is passive. They just kind of go along, whatever happens, happens, and the Lord will take care of us and all of that. Krishna is not saying that. Krishna is saying that a person that is a bhakta, who is truly devoted, will be extremely smart, prompt, alert. They'll be an expert in everything that they're doing because of the uh, the. Number one, the clarity that comes with calmness of mind when you are devoted, when you are a devoted person, when you have surrender, your mind is calm. This is another one of the aspects of bhakti yoga is to understand the effect is deep calmness of mind. When you surrender and you said, oh my God, and you look up, there's a calmness of mind. That person will be extremely clear. They'll be extremely clear to act. But that they will also have this profound sense of gratitude towards the higher that comes with bhakti. Awareness plus gratitude. This is bhakti, another way we've we described that bhakti is described. So because of that, you'll have this profound sense of repayment. All of these will make you extremely attentive, alert, in how you do what you do, how you do everything, not just at work, but how you pack your bag, how you organize your house, how you brush your teeth, brush your teeth, how you do everything, because you have this uh, great sense of of gratitude and devotion towards everything. And as I mentioned, the clarity of mind, of intellect that comes with it, that comes with devotion simply makes you smarter in what you do. You're How more so? Clear do you mind? More... Yeah, do you mind? Well, look at the, look at the opposite. Yeah, if you look at the opposite, it, it becomes clear. Mm -hmm. If your mind is, is, is agitated, you can't think. 
So if your mind is constantly agitated with ego and egoistic desires and egoistic conflict and egoistic um, everything, then it, it's just like background noise. You, you need you need to like you feel like screaming. Just turn it off. I can't hear. You know, like if someone's blaring a television and you're trying to read something, you know, please turn it off. I, I need to I need to read this. Right. Same thing with our own mind. If the mind is too agitated, too much demand, too much ego, too much doubting, too much all of that, you won't be able to think. You won't be able to do your job well. You won't be dexterous, whatever that is. But if your mind is calm, if your mind is relaxed, if your mind is is satisfied in devotion, the intellect that we, whatever intellect you have, uh, will be more penetrating more sharp burning more clearly and then your whatever jobs you do you'll do extremely well even if it's just mundane by yourself nobody to see you how you do the dishes i was chatting with i was chatting with uh, i was telling you a little bit about yesterday i was chatting with biz stone from he's a co-founder of twitter yesterday mm-hmm. and he was saying that his he has this argument with one of his friends, this friend named Jason. They go back and forth of, in the apocalypse, what would you do? And uh-huh. and he said, in the apocalypse, he's like, my viewpoint is I would stock up on a shit ton of chickpeas and crackers and <laughs> soups and hand it out to all of my neighbors right around me and uh-huh. and make sure that I'm I'm feeding them. And he was like, that way, I just have multiple sets of eyes looking out for me because I'm feeding yeah. them. And he and he was like, and my friend Jason, it's like, no, 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 dude, they will come rob you. They will shoot you and take all of your chickpeas. You cannot do that. And he's like, well, they're my neighbors. They I already have a relationship with them. These aren't strangers, and I don't believe they'd do that. I think they would protect me. And his friend, he was like, and my friend Jason's like, no, no, no. You set it, you buy a bunch of guns, you set up traps all around your house. Anyone mm-hmm. that even opens my door, there's a shotgun strapped, wired to the door to blow their head off. Mm-hmm. And and this guy Biz is a co-founder of Twitter. He's founded multiple successful businesses. Is is you know, it is uh he's worth, I don't know three, four, five hundred million dollars. And in his career arc, he wasn't just BSing. His career arc really embodies this this unselfish kind of I'm gonna be the best supporting actor to everyone around me type of approach. And mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's it and it's not even out of just um, a selfless devotion. He just has an understanding of how the universe is wired of helping others of kind of to become a master at his craft and become a a great business person. It is so much about feeding those around him. And, and then in that very funny story and unique example that he's thought through in his mind, he's like, that's how I stay most protected myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. And it will, it will definitely uh, enable him to think more clearly and um, 
serve everybody better to have that attitude. Right. And to feel like you've got 30 neighbors looking out for you versus the guy that has the, the trip wires all over his house and can barely even walk through the hallway without wondering, did, do I have something wired up here or there? Uh, I can't imagine the, the agitation of just every, not only just what's happening outside your house, but everything you set up in your own house being just as, as risky. Uh, there is that clarity of, of mind. Another slight side note on this biologically, I just learned this week that uh, the generosity uh, neurochemical oxytocin, when you perform generosity and, and it's in line with this not seeing otherness, when you perform generosity neurochemically, you release oxytocin, which is the same, the same neurochemical that gets released when you are hugged. So you feel mm -hmm. safe when you're generous. And when you take, when you take your body releases, so Dr. Uh, Dr. Molly Maloof was telling me this, when you take your body releases um, vasopressin, which stresses you out, which makes you feel fearful. And it's just so counterintuitive taking more resources actually biochemically sends the signal to you that you are unsafe versus oxytocin, the neurochemical that tells mm -hmm. you you are safe, um, gets released through generosity, that, that clarity of mind to, to what you're saying is tied in almost just this cosmic natural law, it seems, at least biologically, um, but probably much deeper to um, that, that clarity of mind coming with that lack of seeing and otherness. That's interesting. I've never connected the clarity of mind with devotion and and um, surrender. Yeah, and um, there's also this quality of bhakti that's, uh, there's a word in Sanskrit, ascharya, which means wonderment. So, to continue throwing paint at the the wall of what what is bhakti uh another another quality of it is ascharya which is this sense of wonderment and that's another thing that stops your mind which is why people are addicted to all, all kinds of things um like jumping off of cliffs and surfing bigger and bigger waves and um whatever it is uh putting themselves on spaceships to go and, and fly for 10 minutes and come down to get that sense of Ascharya, that sense of wonderment, that childish sense of, Oh my God. Like I was thinking yesterday, uh, driving up to meet you guys, um, to go for a little, a little surf yesterday. Um, I was on the ramp the, down to the PCH. And I remember the first time I drove down the ramp on the PCH in 2010, the first time I drove to, yeah, came to LA by car and you hit the, you drive the 10 all the way from Texas and then you make that turn and you see the ocean heading up the PCH towards Malibu. And I remember just being completely having my breath taken away, you know, Australia wonder. And, and you know, that's, this is life. Now it's just the way I go to Malibu. I've done it 4,000 times, you know, 
but we all are constantly trying to get back to the these states of wonder because our mind stops in them. Our mind stops in those moments. It could be even, I don't know, I would imagine even in investing, it's like the first time someone gives you a million dollars to get it, you're in a state of wonder, oh my God, to invest, but that's uh, just when you when you see something that it's like you have these disparate six or seven different thoughts on what the future could look like or what you wish existed and then you mm -hmm. chat with a founder that you have one 30-minute conversation and all seven seemingly disparate thoughts come together and in a beautiful in a beautiful way that the world becomes simple again in your life. Yeah, it is. It is a sense of wonder of, of like, Oh my God, mm -hmm. that's it. That, that is it. That's, there is a sense of wonder there. This is talk about the mind. My mind is being blown right now around these synonyms with devote you. Like we chatted at the top of the conversation and for people that are hearing all of these concepts for the first time. This is the ancient 5,000 plus year old philosophy of Vedanta, uh, Bhakti Yoga being uh, a part of that. That it, but it, this happens. So it, it, this is jumping off cliffs. These philosophically deep concepts that you think you know what they are, like oh, devotion. I know what that is, but no, I don't know what that is. I know the outward symbols of perhaps someone that's devoted mother Teresa in an orphanage as a, as a symbolic representation. But, but that's like saying, I know California because of the shape on a map and you're blowing my mind right now of these synonyms of devotion that I've never considered. And I spent weeks on chapter 12 and, uh, and it's still, just uh, the penny is dropping as as we chat of surrender these synonyms surrender obviously worship but mental clarity i would have never yeah so i mean when you're in a state of of wonderment so i was, I was uh, getting a, i was getting a phone call there but but the wonderment, what, the last one, I was just getting a phone call, sorry, but the, the last thing, wonderment, like I, that's, I just have never considered that as a synonym of devotion. Yeah, it's, it's the arguably an essential aspect. If, you know, I, it, when you are in that state, the reason we all pursue states of wonder is because it does temporarily stop the mind. It temporarily brings about that profound, non-egoistic view of things, uh, which everyone will, everyone has. That's why everyone, I'm sure, can relate to this. Everyone has those moments in their life where they're just stopped by the wonder of it all of the fact that things exist, of the fact that I exist, of the fact that, you know, whatever. And, and um, 
our teacher, Swamiji, Swami Patasarthi, he often says, you know, uh, if you become very subtle, if you become very adept at, um, at bhakti, as it were, then just peeling a banana can send you into states of wonder and rapture. Just rec- just seeing the crazy, uh, incredible product that is a banana, you know, which we totally take for granted. He says you you don't that therefore need a Mount Everest or the most perfect sunset anymore. You don't need just the very the simplest things of life can can put you into that profound state of wonder and ascharya. And all of these things are connected, right? And with that comes gratitude. And with that comes stillness of mind. And with that comes clarity of thought. And with that comes service to others. And with that comes... Um, lack of otherness. Of just like Lack of otherness. Believe, they're all, yeah, they're all connected. A, yeah, a plant grows this, this perfect fruit. Millions of cells that make up this banana that is uh, so perfectly preserved by its own skin that you peel back. Well, it is, it is eight o'clock. So do you want to open it up for, for Q and a, or is there anything else that you'd like to round out before opening? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, sh- we definitely, uh, let's do Q and a, but just, yeah, just to, to say that, um, this is just a start, uh, some, some thoughts, uh, about what is bhakti yoga and, um, uh, it's definitely not just being, um, a, um, doing particular devotional actions it's about um it's about a a growth it's about something that um that helps us in in terms of growth so uh let's see yeah if anybody would like to ask any questions um go ahead and raise your hands we'll bring you up or any thoughts and yeah we're spending an hour here but joseph with your classes i think you spend just on chapter 12 alone of the Gita, probably months. Yeah, yeah, true. Exactly. So yeah, I'm, I do, I have a Gita class on Saturday mornings where we go through verse by verse on zoom. And uh, yeah, the, the, we sometimes we're the, we're currently on one verse that we've been doing for three classes. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth there and you're right. It's, um, this is really just the beginning uh, to start thinking about it. Um, Nandini tried to bring you up here. And Michael will try to bring up here. And if you all grab at one or two things mentioned here that, that really speak to you, and in that same vein of, of three weeks spent on one verse in the Gita, if there's one concept or soundbite in here that speaks to you, jot it down and and really go wholeheartedly into spending a few few days if not weeks on on uh, digesting it uh michael go ahead sure thanks guys always appreciate the the chat and insight hey michael one question that i have um in in a similar vein somewhat somewhat tangential is i guess the idea of happiness surrounds us even in a, even in a state of devotion um the vedante treatise talks about like the absolute state of being that lies within us it refers to that infinite happiness of the self 
And I, I guess I'm just wondering how you would define happiness. I guess oftentimes I think of happiness as an emotion and I guess within, within my study that that would be tied to a lesser version of self. So yeah. maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking of happiness um, just from an emotional standpoint. Maybe you can dig into that a bit. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Uh, so Vedanta, as I'm sure you've, you've seen uh, in the book is, um, moves from the known to the unknown. So that's that's how not not just Vedanta, but any good knowledge uh, moves from the known to the unknown. So it, it takes us, any anyone who's educating us, ideally takes us from what we understand to something ultimately to, that we don't understand or that is currently beyond us. So you're right. Happiness, um, uh in, in the mundane sense, is, is really nothing more than uh, cessation of mental agitation. So, so what we talk about in the world as happiness is uh, you have a desire, you're agitated for that thing, and um, you get that thing and you're happy for as long as you have it. You know, give a dog a bone, that, that kind of thing. Um, so you're right. Ultimately, though, the the happiness of the self or the the, the bliss of the self is maybe perhaps a, a more a closer to accurate word. Um, is not is not based on any um, particular contact. It it is itself uh, the embodiment of, for lack of better word, happiness, bliss. It is. It is paripurna. It is completely full. The self has no uh, room for improvement in any way, qualitatively, quantitatively, in any way. It, it is absolute. Uh, so you're right. It's not, um, technically speaking, calling it happiness is a, a very, um, I don't know, a very introductory way of pointing people in the direction of the self. And um, arguably, uh, the self is, in fact, beyond happiness and sadness. It is beyond joy and sorrow. It is that which is conscious of those things. Um, but at the, in the initial stages, uh, people are used to pursuing happiness. We are all used to pursuing happiness in various forms. So sometimes the book, that book, in particular, or any of the other Vedantic texts will say, uh, if it's happiness that you're after, the true, the absolute happiness is in the self, is the self. But happiness is by no means a um, complete definition of what that state is, that state of self-realization. And in fact, there is no definition that's complete. But these are pointers from known to the unknown. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super helpful. So you would, you would say that the ultimate state of being is bliss rather than a pursuit of happiness, which we oftentimes think is kind of the, the end all, the place that we're trying to get to. Yeah, bliss is definitely a more traditional word for, for that state. Um, ananda. Ananda means bliss. It's one of the pointers for describing the self. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so the, 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 the problem with happiness as a definition is that we have, as you say, the idea that it's something that you, you go and you pursue and you get and then you're happy. So the self is actually what you are now. You are that bliss now, uh, currently polluted by ego and egocentric desires. When they are removed, what is, what is left, what is revealed is that, uh, that inherent quality of fullness, of completeness, and all of the other ways that we describe the self, which is um, not really explainable. So it's like, okay, in the, in the dreamers, in the dream state, the dreamer can have happiness, they can have sadness, they can have all of those things. But the ultimate liberation, the ultimate freedom, the ultimate truth for the dreamer is when they wake up. So anytime we start projecting worldly happiness from the waking state onto the absolute, we are, um, we are limiting it and it is unlimited. That's great. Appreciate Thanks, that. Michael. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Nandini, what's up? You have a question. Hi, hi, Mr. Joseph. So my Hello. question is, does Jnana Marga or the path of the intellect, does it lead yeah. to bhakti in the sense that you get to a point where you realize all one can do is let go or surrender to life or nature, whatever it is? Yeah, good question. Does Jnanam lead to bhakti? Uh, yes, absolutely. And as we said, they serve each other. So you've got to understand what you feel and feel what you understand. Bhakti is, you could say, like the is like the uh, the oil that you use to to cut something with a big saw. You know, you need that um, lubrication, as it were, the feelings, the emotions. Otherwise, you're just a professor, right? So a professor who's got the deep understanding plus a surrender to the unknown, to recognizing that all of my efforts are futile and I cannot ultimately know, even that idea that I don't know, that it's impossible to ultimately know. That's all bhakti and wonder at that truth. So you get your thoughts as high as you can with jnanam and you surrender. You sit in wonder of that that reality, that truth that you really are. The very fact that you is if you can relate to that, the very fact that you is, is the most wondrous thing. The very fact that anything is. Why should there be anything in the first place? That itself is, is amazing. And the fact that, it, that you're conscious, all of that. So, um, yes, as you study and reflect, your bhakti will deepen. Your surrender will grow. You'll, you'll truly understand. And that also as we said earlier, creates space in the mind for you to think more deeply, think more profoundly. And in that way, the bhakti also helps the penetration in, in the jnana yoga. Uh, Mr. Joseph, may I ask another question? Sure. So now, um, let's say one comes to the realization that the mind can't get itself out of the way. So one realizes that, oh, all one can do is surrender to life or to let go. 
but the very act of wanting to surrender or wanting to let go itself is a hindrance to the to the goal that we have then how does one move forward are we and and my next question would be are we at the mercy of forces that are beyond us so you you go with those desires yes ultimately the desire for liberation is the is the last desire to have that has to go but you can't start by dropping that desire it's called mamukshatwa yearning for liberation if you don't have the desire you won't move you won't put in any effort you will not try to govern or control yourself in any way shape or form so yes and this is a very i'm not saying you're doing this but this is a very hip sort of modern spiritual thing to do is be like hey give up the desire for desireless now you're the buddha already you know you just just stop looking for liberation and you'll know yourself this is bullshit this is completely uh catering to the instant desires of the western mind that's all that is so it's like oh it's easier to just tell people you're already that uh don't uh don't put in any effort so you've you've got to actually nurture that desire if you're so fortunate to have a desire for liberation if you're so fortunate to have a desire for higher living for the highest truth for understanding more if you are so fortunate in that way you should cultivate it like a a little flame if you're trapped in a freezing cave and there's one little flame burning everybody will do everything to keep that flame going because it's your lifeline so you need to keep that desire going it's not a hindrance that one desire for the higher that will take you away from all the lower selfish egoistic agitating uh sickening desires that that we have that cause all kinds of problems in our lives so get that higher desire feed it with knowledge feed it with oxygen of knowledge let it grow and sure ultimately you have to stamp out even that desire but not now that's at the end so it, it it's like saying the the way to shoot the arrow is to to is it's all in the release just let the let the string go on the bow and the arrow will but if you never pull it it'll just fall on the ground in front of you nothing will happen so our emphasis is on effort. Pull the arrow, pull the string, keep pulling the string. You just keep pulling it, keep pulling it, keep pulling it. And that way cre- enhance that desire for liberation more and more and more. When you finally release it, that arrow will truly fly. But don't if you everyone in the I'm not saying you're doing that, but the kind of modern western thing is just release the arrow now, you know? Why put any effort? You, you can be the Buddha overnight. All these people in the past, they took too long. We can do it with one app just at lunchtime. Watch this app and you'll be enlightened. This is rubbish, you know. It's just marketing. Okay, Nandini? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. That was very thank, helpful. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Reza's looking to come up. Let's see if... And Joseph, it's uh, past, past ahead, eight Jane. for me, so I'm... I'm on dad duty now, but okay. another another great Friday morning and everybody every seven every Friday at seven a.m. Pacific, ten Eastern, uh, we host this clubhouse yoga for your intellect and cover all the various topics that uh, you may have 
seen like devotion. You may have come across in, in your life before, but to the depth that I think only thousands of years of philosophical study and thinkers can provide with Vedanta. So thank you, Joseph, as always. All right, James, thanks. And yeah, I can take, uh, uh, Reza had look, had been asking someone, uh, and uh, let me see if I can try to turn you on there, Reza. Okay. And then um, we do have replays that are going uh, also for all of these. So if you want to listen again or hear any other points, uh, the replays are, are active. So it doesn't look like I was able to pull up Reza. It's okay. Let's see, there's someone else down there, but not coming up. So, okay, guys, no problem. We'll stop it there. Um, thank you all so much for joining. And as James said, we're here every Friday morning, 7 a.m. Pacific. And uh, keep track of the club, follow us, um, and follow the club, and you'll be notified uh, every week for the next, the next thing. Uh, if any of you are interested in... Uh, my regular Zoom classes, um, which go into the texts in a systematic way on Zoom, you can uh, DM me uh, here at, at um, uh, or send a message here. And um, yeah, otherwise, see you all next time. I'll leave it on in case you need to follow anybody, but I'll be closing the room in a, a minute or so. Thank you all.